so I decided I want to train complete athletes. The only reason I won that bronze medal over there on the desk is because I was a complete athlete. Anybody, and this is true in all sports, if you watch the Olympics next year, anybody on that start line, whether it's ski racing, track and field, whatever, all 12 of those athletes could win. They're fast enough, they ski well enough, whatever. It's the one who has the confidence, the focus, the visualization, all the mental aspects, that's the, gonna be the gold medalist. And I wanted to spread that to the young kids. So we started Elite Team to, to educate and inspire junior athletes. We focus on building complete athletes by teaching those concepts of sports psychology, sports physiology, and sports nutrition. Yet it's all about hard work, learning, and fun. It's gotta be fun. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness by presenting their stories uncensored and uncut. I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Doug Lewis. Doug is the founder and CEO of Elite Team, a company that provides sports and fitness camps and programs focusing on building complete athletes. They do this by teaching the concepts of sports physiology, sports psychology, and sports nutrition, all while ensuring the programs are fun and challenging for the participants. Doug created Elite Team in 1991 with a desire to pass on his, his winning knowledge of world-class sports to future generations. Prior to creating Elite Team, Doug was a two-time Olympian and world championship medalist in alpine skiing. After retiring from competitive ski racing, Doug found a new passion in endurance sport that provided a new avenue for him to push the limits of his mind and body. His accomplishments so far in this arena include completing multiple 100-mile ultramarathons and winning the first ever Spartan death race in 2007. In this interview, we discuss Doug's time growing up in Vermont, his journey to becoming an Olympian, his ski racing career, elite team, and his passion for endurance sport. And so, without further ado, my interview with Doug Lewis. Doug, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Um, anytime I can talk about myself, yeah, roll it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So let's start things off at the beginning here. You mentioned me uh, before we got started. Um, you grew up in Vermont, right? Yeah, I grew up on basically the slopes of Vermont, um, born and raised in Middlebury. Both my parents were Middlebury College grads and they didn't move very far. And so uh, in the summer, it was being outside, running, playing, jumping, doing whatever I can with my siblings. And then winters were spent uh, skiing at the Middlebury College Snowball, a little, little ski area right there. Okay. So I assume skiing was a big part of your family growing up. Oh yeah, uh, my mom was a part-time ski instructor um, and we just spent every weekend we could, every free time we could up there. Um, because she was a, a ski instructor, we'd get there before the lifts opened. So we'd be hiking, playing around uh, in our boots and then she left after the close. So we, we would be there a long time. Did you enjoy it? You must've, like even back then. Uh, I, I fell in love with sports activities, but skiing, something clicked with me and skiing. 
Uh, although I wasn't very good early on, I just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, we had a group of kids, guys and girls around my age, and we just terrorized the mountain. We went through the woods, we skied moguls, ice, we hiked, we talked, we did it. And that was a great way to not only grow up, but to learn the sport of skiing because there was really no rules. We did some drills, but it was basically skiing the mountain. Yeah. Well, and what just, what was it like more broadly, just generally speaking to grow up on the slopes of Vermont? It was just awesome. Awesome. Um, I just never, like, if I, I think back, I close my eyes. I never, I never ever have any visions of being inside unless it was to warm up in front of the fire. It was just always being outside in the winter. It was skiing, building jumps. Um, and I was the middle brother. So I was always chasing my older brother and trying to keep my younger brother behind me. So it was total <laughs> competition. Um, and it was just fun. I, it was just fun growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And what age did you start to compete in ski racing? So I probably started skiing when I was two or three. I uh, don't really remember, but I remember wanting to join the junior racing club at Middlebury uh, as soon as I could. I think it had to be eight. I think they might've let me in at seven, but um, I started with the program, the junior club at around eight. And by nine, if you had been able to catch me and slow me down and ask me what I wanted to be at age nine, it was like Olympics, US ski team. I was, <laughs> I was hooked on the sport and the competition. Yeah. Is that like, is that like the typical age where kids will start to become really dedicated in ski racing? Is that at around eight or nine or is it earlier? Is it later? I think in 1970, I think it was a little abnormal. I think it was more about just, you had your sports heroes for sure. But as a kid in the seventies and eighties, you just play around. I think now if you ask eight-year-olds, it's like they have it planned out and it's way too focused. But back then, I think I was a little abnormal in the fact that I had such goals so early. Right. Interesting. And why did you end up focusing on the downhill? So um, I was an alpine skier and within alpine, there's slalom GS, which are the technical events, and then super G and downhill, which are speed. I was a technical skier, slalom and GS, Phil Mayer and Ingemar Stenmark were my heroes, right? Um, and then um, I won a downhill um, when I was 15 or something. And all of a sudden, because um, I had speed, because people, uh, because I then qualified for, for other downhills, I switched to become a downhiller. So that's when I fell in love with the speed events, but I grew up slalom and GS, which was the technical skier. And thank God I did because a lot of people don't think of a downhill skier as being very technical. All you do is go straight, right? But you don't, it is about turning. It is about precise carving is it about technique and so I was so glad that I was a technical skier growing up had all those skills and then learned how to go fast as a downhill racer right yeah and I'm sure like it could be you know when you're going at speeds that fast in the downhill like 
inches in one direction of your skis versus another or or less can make the difference between you going down the hill perfectly versus crashing oh for sure i mean this is skipping ahead but when i was on world cup downhill you're the Average speed is 60 to 70 miles an hour. And if you go over a jump where you may fly 150 feet, right? 50 meters, um, you're, you're in the air for that time. So if you are off going off the jump, if you are off direction by a, a degree, by two degrees, multiply that by 150 feet, you could land in the trees. So <laughs> speed, um, airtime forces all of downhill make it so intense and so dangerous that you had to be precise. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for people listening, who don't know like what a downhill ski race is like, um, I guess, describe it for people, like what it entails and all of that. Um, so I'm speaking in averages. So on the World Cup, which is um, the Federation of International Skiing, FIS, they run World Cups and the average downhill drops 3000 vertical feet in and is usually two miles long and it averages about two minutes. So that's 60 miles an hour on average. So as you drop the 3000 vertical feet down a basically ice rink, that is tipped up on its side, uh, you have to negotiate gates and terrain and snow conditions. So it is controlled chaos. So you want control in your upper body. You want tight core, arms in place, a nice position, but where you meet the snow, where your knees, your ankles and, and feet hit the snow, you want chaos. You want loosey goosey. You don't, you don't want any control there because you don't want friction. You don't want breaks. So it's controlled chaos is the best way I can describe it. And it is literally just free falling at times down the mountain. And you want to go as fast as possible, as fast as possible. So that's what downhill's like. Usually, if you're in the right frame of mind, you don't remember anything because you're in the flow. You're in the moment. Um, and that's the ultimate goal. Shut your mind off. Let your body take over and, and try to drop 3,000 vertical feet as fast as you can. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, in the flow and in the zone. I recently read a book called... Um, I think the rise of Superman is what it's called by Stephen Kotler. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that book or, or read it, um, but he talks about flow yeah. and mentions, you know, how in extreme sports, like, you know, big wave surfing or, you know, downhill skiing, like you almost have to be in that flow state in order to do something that, you know, I guess risky. Oh, for sure. If you're thinking, um, you're probably thinking of something that's already behind you when you're in, some, in something like downhill. So you have to change like speed. The fastest I've ever gone is 97 miles an hour. And so <laughs> where you look, I mean, it changes everything. If you wanna be safe, but if you're the passenger of a car and you're going 65 miles an hour, roll down the window and put your face outside the window at 65 miles an hour. You instantly can't see, you instantly can't breathe, you instantly can't see, and then do it in the winter, right? And so, speed just takes over everything. And so it's years and years and miles and miles to learn how to deal with that speed. Um, but it's, it's amazing what happens, where you look changes, how you, how you tighten your core changes, how you put your skis on the ground changes. It's just amazing speed. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, um, 
so at age eight or nine, you commit, you know, like you want to become an Olympian. Were family and friends, family and friends supportive of your dream? Ah, uh, yeah. I think my friends were like, whatever, Doug, you know, <laughs> as I went up my extra runs, my parents, because they were academics, they're like, they never took it seriously that I, that I had these goals. They're like, yeah, you can ski for a while, but you're going to college, you're getting a job. And, and that's how they thought on my side of the room. It was like, I'm, I'm going to the Olympics. And it was funny when I got to be almost a senior, you know, as I entered high school, I begged my parents to go to a special ski academy where you get to ski every day and you go to school in the afternoon at night. And um, they reluctantly let me go there because they checked out the academics of the school and they, they thought it was okay. But as I, as I ended high school, they're like, you know, apply to Middlebury, apply to Dartmouth, apply to St. Lawrence, whatever all these things are. And I was like, okay, I'll apply, but I'm not going to school. I'm going to the US ski team. And then, so this was the changing point. They went to a World Cup and saw me compete. I had qualified very young for World Cup. They saw me and they saw my dedication. They saw my commitment. They saw the, the culture that I was in. And they're like, you can do this for a while. You can put school on hold. It wasn't until I showed them my commitment that they bent the rules and said, you can go to college after. So they were supportive. Okay. But they had no clue what was going on in my head that I wanted to be a, a downhill Olympia. It was great. Yeah, I, they would they would support me. They would try to get me the best equipment, but I was steering the train. I was driving the train, and they were like, "Yeah, do what you do, but you're going to college." Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And uh, so, how does one train to become like an elite level downhill skier? You you talked before about making sure like your core is strong when you're when you're going down the hill. But like, what did training look like back then, and how has it evolved to today? back then you're talking the 80s right it was there was nothing number one there was no nutrition education we were eating terribly um but physical fitness there was a lot of weights probably unfortunately because um weights are not functional movements a lot of the time so i was doing a lot of squats a lot of hang cleans but because i grew up in vermont because i grew up outside i was a lot of mountain running i would just run up mountains sprints i i invented ski specific movements jumping plyometrics power and so i took what they gave me which was very basic uh stuff at the US ski team and then I supp supplemented, but it was uh, a combination of uh, strength in old fashioned weights and just functional power and agility by just running up and down mountains. So I took it where it needed to go. Now there's blood sugar, uh, you know, blood tests when they're in the weight room, every single rep is monitored and scheduled. I'm so jealous. Uh, of what goes on at the U.S. ski team and, and other U.S. Olympic athlete training centers, but it's so different. But I just hope that they don't ever forget the grit, resilience, outdoor, fun training that you need to have that teaches you real athletic moments, movements. Right. And uh, isn't, yeah, isn't the U.S. ski team, aren't they, don't they, they, they're based out of Park City, right? So you get to see, you get to see that. 
Yeah, they are two miles from where I am right now. It's called yeah. the Center of Excellence, the COE, and I get to go hang out there. And uh, I love seeing the combination of their, you know, weights and machines that are testing them strength-wise, yet they're outside jumping, cutting, playing, uh, reacting, um, and doing all the fun stuff. So they have a nice combination going on right now. I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Um, so in your ski racing career, like when was your big, break, big breakthrough event? Uh, I think the big breakthrough and, and, and I tell this story a lot. I was a small kid. I'm, I'm only five, eight, one of the smallest world cup skiers ever, especially in downhill. So I was, I was always, uh, the smallest kid. And I blame that for the fact that I was never fast young. I was seventh. I was 13th. I was 11th. I was sixth on a good day. Um, which I now think because it kept me hungry. I wasn't the guy that won all the time. So I kept working. I kept the hunger. I kept that fire. Uh, but then I won at 16, I won the junior Olympics, which was just this national race. And all of a sudden something clicked. I was finally fast. And so that junior Olympic win got me onto a US ski team camp, which got me onto a NORAM, which is a high level race, which got me onto the Canadian national race, which then got me to the World Cup. So at 16 and 17, I finally found my speed and that's where the, the change happened. And I finally got my dream of getting onto the US ski team. Okay. It was late. It was late. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that eight or nine, you want to become an Olympian. Like, as I'm sure you, you, you're, you well know, like a lot of Olympians, like it's either Olympic gold or bust or make it to the Olympic team or, or, you know, life is over and stuff like that. Like, what was, what was your mindset like around those sorts of things, like focusing on the process versus the results and that sort of stuff? Well, I'm a big believer in goals. So I had that goal. I had those big dream goals. I, I really, uh, and I teach a lot of kids, right? So you got to have that dream goal. That's your North star that points you in the right direction. When you get a little lost on your way, you can always point to that big goal and at least put you back on track. And then you just backwards from that, right? You got your um, performance goals and your process goals. So basically I always had that one eye on the big goal driving my energy and motivation but then it was day-to-day -day process goals what's going to get me to that next step to get me to that next step to get me that next step so goals for me probably the most important skill maybe uh, of all mental skills uh, that got me to where i uh, i got to go so i was focused i was focused day-to-day -day, but i had that eye on the, on the prize the whole time to motivate me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a tricky balance to, to kind of strike between that, having that goal and the, and the results. And it's sometimes, it's sometimes not, not pretty when the person is so, so goal focused, you know? Yeah. You're going to be disappointed if you're so goal focused because, you know, my, my ultimate goal was to win Olympic medal. I, didn't even come close. I was 24th in the Olympics. I did win a world championship medal. So along the way, I got these prizes and I, and I, and I fulfilled my dream, 
But yeah, if you focus on one thing the entire time, you're probably going to be disappointed and quit early on. <laughs> yeah, and I see that a lot. I coach kids, you know, it's either the parents tell them that what their goal is, or these kids don't set that realistic goal um, and plan that path to it. So it's a real tricky balance. You got to have that, that motivational goal out there, but then you got to have day-to-day little goals that you build and build and build. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. So at a race, like you're getting ready to head down the hill, like what would typically be going through your head at that time? Like as you wait for the gates to open at the top of the hill? Well, as a professional, you have almost every second planned out, right? So, and you practice this and, and I teach the kids that I coach, you know, what's your race routine? Did you practice it? How does it changing throughout? So Imagine, you know, standing at the top of a 3000 foot vertical ice rink and about to throw yourself down. There's a lot of stress going on in your head. So you have that uh, to deal with. You have the visualization of the course. You've got the pressure of the race and results. So you got to handle it. So let's just start 15. I'll just give you an example. 15 minutes out, I arrive at the start. First thing I do is equipment or my boots, skis, goggles, helmet, everything in perfect shape. So that's one thing I can check off. Then I take care of my body, uh, a five to seven minute um, uh, dynamic stretching, moves, sprints, whatever it is. And then, um, then it's five minutes of visualization, just going over that course, going over my plan, going over everything that could happen. And then you get into your equipment and then you got two minutes and then it's all about keywords. You know, and my keywords were like, be aggressive, stay focused, be aggressive. And I wasn't really listening to my keywords, but those just by saying those words put you in that frame of mind that you need to be in. And then I'm in the gate, 15 seconds to go, a couple deep breaths, and then the focus is, is down the hill. So you practice this, you practice this so many times. So whatever happens, it's not going to be a surprise and you have a, a way to deal with it because you are basically throwing your style in the mountain. So you better be in the right frame of mind pushing out of that gate. Right. Yeah. It can't be a surprise on race day. I, one of the biggest breakthroughs that I ever had is I'm, I'm, a, I'm 90 seconds away from my world cup uh, in 1985. And the day before I got second place, best ever result. I was four hundredths out of first. And so I was riding high, had good confidence. And 90 seconds before the race, I wanted this piece of plastic cut off my boot so I could be even more aerodynamic. So I talked to my rep, the guy who prepares my skis. I said, can you cut this piece of plastic off? And then the starter said, one minute to go, Ina Minuta, Numer, Einen Svansik, or whatever I was. So I said, yeah, I got it, a minute to go. And my rep, with this huge knife, missed the piece of plastic and cut his finger down to the bone. And he looked at his finger and he, his eyes rolled up and he passed out right in front of me. And I got 45 seconds to go and I'm like, my rep is dead. So I'm like, doc, we always had a doctor. I'm like, doctor, doctor, Robbie's dead. And the starter's telling me to get in the gate and I'm looking at my dead rep and things, chaos is going on. And at this point, the doctor was there. I'm like, physically, I turned... 180 degrees, but mentally I turned off my rep and turned on my race, 30 seconds to go, did my keywords, did my breathing, flew out of the gate, focused, 
had a great run. I didn't win, but had a great run. But I remember coming through the finish and going, oh, my rep's dead. And I got to the radio. I called up. He was fine. He had just passed out. It was 14,000 feet. He didn't like blood. He passed out. He was fine. But that day um, gave me the confidence that I could go from complete chaos in the starting area to focus in 30 seconds. And that is a skill that I try to teach kids and, and teach businessmen and teach whoever is going to be in a stressful situation. You got to have that mind control. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just, I was just going to say that's that skill can be applied to any and all aspects of life. Yeah. And, and, and you fail a lot, you know, and you just learn from every time that the, the stress gets to you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's an awesome story. Um, so what was it like to compete in your first, at your first Olympics? Oh my God. I, I had qualified in 1984, like with two weeks to go, you have to get a certain results. And I knew I was going, but until I got in that car with Bill Johnson, who was my roommate, who won the gold in 1984, uh, and my coach to drive across the Iron Curtain into Yugoslavia, which was 1984 in Sarajevo, which is, there's not even a Yugoslavia anymore. But I remember getting in that car, I'm like, I'm going to the Olympics. It's finally real. I know I had qualified, but until I got in that car, it was unbelievable. And so we go across the border at midnight, it's raining, it's foggy. The guys are dressed in brown. Like this is USSR, this is behind the Iron Curtain. And they held us there for 20 minutes while they looked at our passports. It was classic. <laughs> and then they let us through. And we were like so relieved that we weren't gonna get shot or arrested. And we made our way to Sarajevo. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to the Olympics. Like my head exploded. My I, I couldn't focus. I was so happy. So it was a really amazing time for me. Um, as I said, I didn't, uh, I ruined, I got 24th that Olympics, but my roommate won the gold and boy, what a learning experience, a bit of a failure for me. I was happy with 24th, but a bit of a failure because I was on a team with Bill Johnson who won the gold, Phil Mayer, who won a gold, Steve Mayer, who won a silver, Debbie Armstrong, who won a gold and Kristen Cooper who won a silver. It's like the best Olympics ever for skiing. And I was a part of it. Boy, what a learning experience I had, which is amazing. Yeah. And what were some of those big key learnings or key takeaways? Um, number one, dealing with the stress. You know, I had practiced. I, I just told the story. I had practiced uh, being calm in the start, but the Olympics is a whole nother level. Like there's everybody's looking at you. Everything is heightened. So I had trouble getting that focus in. So I learned from that. Um, I learned that uh, I was not ready to be on the podium yet, physically, uh, technically, tactically. I had a lot of work to do, so a little bit of a wake-up call, so it re-motivated me. And a year, almost to the day of that race at the Olympics, I was standing in the starting gate of the World Championships, focused. World Championships are just as big, right? Uh, but... Um, but what I had learned a year ahead all came to fruition. And I was standing in that starting gate, confident, focused, more powerful, bigger, stronger, faster, tougher. And it all came together. And I won the first ever world championship medal for a American male that day because of the experience I had a year earlier with a bit of a failure or a bit of a learning experience. 
Interesting. And would you say that was kind of your greatest achievement in ski racing? Was that world championship medal? Um, I get this question a lot and I, I hate to say it wasn't because it was so unbelievable, but I'd say it's tied with, um, I got fifth place at Kitzbühel. Kitzbühel is the, the Super Bowl of male World Cup skiing. It's the toughest, craziest, nastiest, uh, most dangerous downhill in the world. And I got fifth place there. I got two top tens, but a fifth. And that fifth place, because it's at Kitzbühel, really is on par with my bronze medal. It's just a, a private, um, you know, just I have so much gratitude for having done well at that race. So that's another yeah. race that I put just as high. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And because, what about, you know, I've won races yeah. and ski bad and that does mm -hmm. nothing for me. Right. I won't, I won, but I didn't ski my best. So at the world championships, I was on the edge. I was on that controlled chaos where control meets catastrophe. And at Kitzbühel, I was on that edge. So I, those two results, I was very proud of for that reason. Yeah, no, no, I, that definitely makes sense. And what, what about the race in Kitzbühel made it so, so dangerous? Is it like, especially steep, especially slick, like turns are crazy. Like <laughs> there, I can't explain it. I can't explain it except that six, you accelerate in four seconds faster than any car. So in four seconds, you're going 65 miles an hour. So just picture the acceleration out of the start. It's a free mm -hmm. fall. And then five seconds in, you jump over a 180 foot cliff <laughs> in the course. And then it gets just worse from there. So at one point they, they describe it as skiing around a basketball. So imagine the forces throwing you one way and you have to ski around a basketball. And then at the bottom, it is the gnarliest, most dangerous 20 seconds of skiing in the world. It's going across this fall away. So you, you are happy as a ski racer in the finish. You can come in dead last and you're like, I made it down Kitzbühel. So I'm going to go party super hard. <laughs> That's awesome. It's um, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. How about like low points in, in your ski racing career? Like were there any really low points at all? And like, if so, like, how did you overcome them? Well, one low point because it's ski racing has to be an injury. And I had one bad injury in my first ever world cup. I was 17 years old, very young to have my first world cup, but I had skied fast enough, but physically I was not ready. I probably weighed 135 pounds. I mean, I was a high school kid. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but I had qualified, I'd skied fast enough. So on my first world cup, I'm running third to last. The TV cameras were shut off. The crowds were gone, but I was in that gate. It was my first world cup, another stepping stone to my dream. So I push out of the start and I'm chucking down there about halfway through, it goes over this jump and I go over the jump and I land and it had snowed maybe six inches the night before. And there was some ruts, which were bumps in the course. And at 60 miles an hour, I caught an edge, which means my skis uh, split. One went right and one went left. And the first thing that hit was my head on the ground and it knocked me out. And I say that thankfully, because the second thing that happened is I hit a chairlift tower at about 50 miles an hour and broke my back. And so I'm lying there and uh, all tingly, I wake up. I come to consciousness and there's 
people over on the chairlift going above me and my body's tingly. I never lost feeling, but it was all tingly. And I got down, I didn't get a helicopter ride, but they took me down the sled. And this was what goes on in the a mind of a 17 year old. I get to, into, their, into the hospital, they take the uh, x-rays. The doctor comes and looks at me on the, on the, on the, uh, the stretcher thing. And he goes, you broke your back. And this is what goes through the mind of a 17 year old. I said, there's a race tomorrow, I'm not racing. There's a race next week, probably not gonna race. I said, doc, how about two weeks? Can I race the, two, the race in two weeks? And he just laughed at me. He's like, dude, you broke your back. You're not skiing for eight months. And I instantly started crying. Like it wasn't a broken back. It was the fact that I couldn't ski for eight months. Um, but that was a low point in the fact that I had to rebuild myself physically and mentally because physically I had to weigh more. By the time I raced my next World Cup, I was 20 pounds heavier. I had refocused or finally focused on fitness more. And so that was a wake up call. And then the whole risk taking thing was a wake up call. I would go 110% every single run. And that woke me up and said, now you got to learn when to make the, when to dial in that red zone of the final risk. So I learned a lot from that, but that was a low point for sure. A yeah. wake up call. Uh, I could get seriously hurt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as you look back at, at your ski racing career, on, like as on its entirety, like what are your what are your biggest takeaways overall? I, I just I always I have a joyful feeling about my ski career just because um, it was such hard work. It was such a long journey. Um, I was part of a team that was amazing. We had such great team team teamwork and teammates. I remember good times in Europe. I remember really digging deep. I just remember everything as, as a great roller coaster ride uh, towards my goals. Uh, so what I take away is that, thank God, I kept my eye on that goal and then kept that work ethic and was surrounded by a team that had the same goal. Even though it was an individual sport, we all had that same goal and we all built off each other. So the takeaway is just like set your goals, work as hard as you can. And no matter how far you get, it's going to be a great journey. I, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And having that support network and that team of people who kind of have the same goal around you, I think is really important too. And probably not stressed enough, I think. No, especially in an individual sport. Like, yeah. you know, we're working together day to day, trying to find fast skis, trying to find the fast line, trying to work on our technique. But on race day, my teammates, my enemy, it's like, it's, <laughs> it all changes on race day in the individual sports. Like, yeah, I want to kick your butt until I get to the finish and then we'll be friends again. It's yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, so have, like post post ski pro ski racing career, um, like what was that transition like for you? And kind of like after that life and was it a hard transition? Uh, retiring in 1988 was the toughest part of my life so far. And I'm 57 years old. Those two years I was lost. Uh, I lost my identity. Your identity is so focused on being a ski racer. And, you know, I was in sports illustrated, uh, the cover of, you know, I was in the New York times, you know, you're on this pinnacle and then all of a sudden you're nothing, you are nothing. 
and I struggled. Luckily, because of my parents, I went right to UVM, the University of Vermont, and buried myself into schoolwork and had that outlet. But I was, I was lost. What do I do? Who am I? Um, really tough. And at that point, the U.S. Olympic Committee and the U.S. Ski Team had no help, nothing. They're like, well, I'd never heard from them again, right? And so really tough. And the thing that got it out, got me back out of that dark time was I started, I had to listen to myself again. Everybody's like, you got to go to Wall Street, you got to go to Dartmouth, you got to be on television, you know, do all these things. But I didn't want to do those. And then, and then about a year after I retired, I got a call from the Green Mountain Valley School, the ski academy where I went. And they're like, how'd you like to coach U10s? And I'm like, do I get a free ski pass? And I'm like, sure. So I was coaching eight and nine-year-olds and loved it. It was like all of a sudden I found a passion. And it saved me because once you find your passion, then all the skills that I had learned skiing, you just transfer them, right? You set the goal, you work really hard, you find a team, you do all those skills. But until you find that passion as a as an ex-athlete, you are lost. So it was important for me, I guess, to, to struggle for those two years. But once I found the passion, then I knew what to do because I had had those skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like those two years could have been even longer had it not been for your parents stressing, uh, you know, going to college and getting that education. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was lost. Thank God I had that focus. But I was the geek. I was the 26-year-old freshman with both with my knapsack straps on running to class. Like I couldn't be late for class. And all these 19 <laughs> year olds are like, dude, who's the old bald guy running the class? What an idiot. It was so funny. Yeah. And, and uh, I was in, picture this, I was in a calculus class or a trig or whatever math was. And I hadn't been in a math class since high school, junior year. So it was 10 years bef since I went to a math class. And I had no clue, like, what, what was I doing? And so I found out very quickly that the 19-year-olds the wanted beer and I needed help with my homework. And they're like, if you buy us some beer, we'll do your homework. And I'm like, okay, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, do you do eventually um, get into the broadcast booth, right? And start... Covering. Yeah, my first my first step was into uh, creating Elite Team, which is a, a company I still run 31 years later. Um, I I got there because, again, um, it's hard to break into broadcasting, and there was no spot open. It was Bob Biati, Frank Gifford. There was nobody until they changed. There was going to be nobody. So I was beating my head against the wall. Uh, on that. So I just forgot about it and uh, started Elite Team, the company. Okay. Got it. So let's, let's get into Elite Team now. Um, like when, when do you get that inspiration to start it and, and why do you start it? Um, I quickly found out that um, the secret to my success after, you know, seeing all these champions, especially skiers, was that Yes, I was a ski racer and I did the drills and I was a hell of a ski racer technically and tactically, but it was all the other stuff that made me a champion. It was eating right and fueling my body nutritionally. 
it was being physically fit, as strong and as agile and as powerful and as full of capacity as I could be physiologically. And probably most importantly, it was that psych, uh, psychology aspect, the sports psych aspect. So I decided I want to train complete athletes. The only reason I won that bronze medal over there on the desk is because I was a complete athlete. Anybody, and this is true in all sports, if you watch the Olympics next year, hopefully they happen, anybody on that start line, whether it's ski racing, track and field, whatever, all 12 of those athletes could win. They're fast enough, they ski well enough, whatever. It's the one who has the confidence, the focus, the visualization, all the mental aspects, that's the, gonna be the gold medalist. And I wanted to spread that to the young kids. So we started Elite Team to, to educate and inspire junior athletes. We focus on building complete athletes by teaching those concepts of sports psychology, sports physiology, and sports nutrition. Yet it's all about hard work, learning, and fun. It's gotta be fun. The only reason I ski is because it's fun. So it drives me crazy when I see kids' uh, sports being just killed by not having it fun. So hard work, learning, and fun is a elite team. Yeah, that's great. And um, what is it? So like what provide like an overview of like elite team for people listening today? So we used to do camps. Now we do online uh, programs as well. But um, let's just think of um, an exercise. Say you're doing uh, an obstacle course. We're going to work on speed and agility, power, speed, and agility through an obstacle course. The night before or the, the night before, we'd, we'd either teach them at a camp or they'd have a, a worksheet. And this is why you need power right? To get out of that start and you can, you can be faster. This is why you need uh, agility, right? To get through the hairpins and, and whatever uh, of ski racing. So I teach them why they're going to train specifically. And then the next day they're in there and they take it seriously and they, they focus better because they have a reason why they're doing an obstacle course. And then after that obstacle course, we then draw the course. So we've we're practicing visualization. We're practicing memorizing the course. We break down what was your strengths in that course? What was your weaknesses? So, so many um, athletic practices are, you go out there, you throw the lacrosse ball and you go home. Yep. Elite team, we explain what we're gonna learn. We do it super fun when we're doing it and then take the time to, to, to dive deep and make sure that learning sticks. And so it's a, it's a really comprehensive and fun thing that we get to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I'm not, I'm not too, I guess, privy as to kind of all the different types of like sports camps out there for kids, but it, it sounds like you go a lot more in depth. And like you said, on kind of the complete aspect, the complete athlete aspect of, yeah, just teaching these kids to be, yeah, I guess just better athletes in general. Yeah, it goes back to when, you know, I was uh, a youngster and they're like, okay, we're doing 20 hill sprints. And I was like, why? I, I'm going to do them and I'm going to do them as hard as I can. But like, tell me why. As soon as I learned that if I had more power in my legs, I could carve a tighter turn and carry more speed out of that gate. Oh, I'm give me 40 hill sprints. You know, as soon as I know <laughs> that what I'm doing is going to make me faster, 
I'm going to do it. And so giving those kids those tools to understand the sport and why they're doing it. Oh my God, it, the, the commitment and the confidence and the work ethic just, just drives up amazingly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what would like, um, I'm sure they're different, but like one, one day at one of your camps might look like, like, like walking through like maybe like a kid's schedule for like a camp. Day. All right. So an in-person camp, which we had to, right. Uh, skip last year, but we have one camp scheduled for this summer. So it's up at 6.30 for a morning run and stretch. So every kid, uh, guys and girls, we're out there, we meet on the thing, and we're going on just a draw a jog for 20 minutes, throw in some core, throw in some agility, you're out there. Starting the day with a win, right? If you can go out there and just do something early, you got to win. So we do that. Breakfast is at, uh, sorry, 7, up at 6.30, 7 is morning run and stretch, 7.30 breakfast. An hour off to digest, so 8.30 to 11.30 is the first three-hour um, program or session. And so we could be doing agility and speed and power. We could be doing strength. We could be doing mental work, ropes course, jumping off stuff, you know, pushing your limits, whatever it is, 8 to 8.30 to 11.30. 11.30 lunch, 12.30, we're in uh, the gym uh, with our notebooks learning something. We'll go over sports physiology. We'll go over power. We'll go over something. 1230 to 130. 130 to 430, another three-hour session. That could be more games. It could be uh, mountain biking. It could be whatever. And then 430 to 530 off. 530 is dinner. 630 to, to uh, 8 is another session, but that's usually games, capture the flag, something, something team building aspect. 8, we're in doing our journals. We'll do the journal work. And then they have 8.15 to 9 off. And then 9 o'clock is lights out. And if I hear you talking, if your light is on, if you are awake at 9.04, you are cleaning toilets. And uh, <laughs> we used to have it where you got to wake up early and do an early morning run. But the kids love that. Cleaning toilets is the best uh, uh, thing you can threaten a kid with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. So they're now, full an hour was a kid. <laughs> yeah, they're they're full days and they're super fun. And by the second day at nine oh one, they are all exhausted and going to sleep. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a full that's a full day. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. The uh, the sports psychology aspect um, of your approach is one that I find really interesting. Like, how do you how do you try how do you try to like weave that aspect into your camps so that like it makes a real impact on the kids? Um you just prove it to them by showing them how to do it. You know, it's every, another thing about our campus, every coach that I hire was an elite teamer. I've been doing it so long that I can hire just a elite team alums. So I picked the best of the best. And so every coach knows that we all, you know, it's this complete athlete. So again, if we're doing, if we're doing an, an obstacle course, we walk through the obstacle course. We inspect it. You don't just run it, right? We inspect it. I test the kids. How many red gates? How many blue gates? What's after the, the crawl? How many rings are there? You know, it's all of a sudden they're thinking, right? And then they visualize. And then we'll run some practice runs at 90%. What did you learn at the 90%? There's a coach right at the end of the finish going, all right, take a moment. What'd you learn? Where can you go faster? Who's doing it well out there that you can copy? We definitely do not hide times. We're posting times because kids know who's fast. They know who's the best and who's not the best. But what you can do is turn it around. Whoever's doing the, the best, guy or girl, 
what are they doing that you could bring into your pro into your realm right and so it's all of a sudden a little bit of a teamwork and then afterwards we'll again we'll draw the course we'll talk about that course so if you just involve the sports psychology always it becomes part of it and that's what we do at elite team yeah yeah that's in interesting. everything you do yeah yeah it touches everything yeah that's interesting what I do mean, you enjoy? Just put it to business. Put it to business. I'm just pulling out of my head, though. You know, if you have a, a business meeting at nine, right? Just don't show up at nine. You are there at eight thirty, downloading the agenda, writing where you can put yourself into that agenda. What are your questions? What are your points? Then you go to that meeting early. You get there early. You better be prepared. And then you, you know, it's just the same thing. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's being a complete businessman, a complete athlete, a complete human. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. What do you enjoy most about about running elite team? Uh, inspiring kids. Yeah. Oh my god! It, you know we have this uh, this trapeze. You got to climb up thirty feet, right? You're in a harness. You're all roped up. You got to climb up thirty feet, and you got to jump and catch this trapeze. My life changes when I see their life change. You'll get a kid who who either is scared to do it, right? Or a kid who thinks it's easy. And then you put a blindfold on them and you tie one arm behind their back and try to do it. And all of a sudden you put them in a positive challenge. And, and it's, it's to be a coach and to find that positive challenge takes experience, but you need to challenge them in a way that it's just out of their reach. And you see a, a kid hesitant or you see a kid can't do it four times. But then you see something take over and they are successful. They grab the trapeze and their life has changed. From that moment, their life has changed because they have the confidence. They, they push through something that was so tough. That's why I do it. Those moments that I get almost every day at Elite Team. Yeah, those must be just amazing. <laughs> it's so fulfilling, yeah. And, and I have Michaela Schifrin, who's the best skier in the world, now went to elite team. I have five people on the U S ski team who went to elite team and I see them and I'm like, I remember you as an eight-year-old, you know, so scared to jump off that trapeze. And now you are throwing yourself down the mountain. And if I could have just a little bit to do with that, to make it easier for them to get their dreams, it makes me feel good. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's shift gears here a little and um, get get into your passion around adventure and endurance sport. So like what sparked that passion to want to push your limits on the endurance side of things? I think it was just a new challenge. Um, Luckily, my knees are good. Uh, I've never blown out my knee for a World Cup skier. That's unheard of, but my body can still take it. And so I just keep looking for challenges. I got into skydiving and did that and that was fine. And then I moved on and I just want to continually push my limits physically and everybody thinks it's about the physical, but it's really not that physical. I want to push myself mentally. I love going into dark places, like dark places (laughs) where I don't know if I can get out and I want to see if I can get out. And so I'm just continually trying to find places that'll challenge me. Um, and, uh, and it's endurance races right now. It's hundred milers. It's, it's where I am right now. I don't know what I'll be doing in five years, but that's what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like what was, what was the first like endurance event that kind of like 
oh, this is, I still want it. I still kind of like, I like, I like this and I want to keep doing this. Oh, the first one is within an, within a year in that dark period of time after I uh, retired, I had to find something. So I signed up for a marathon, the Burlington marathon. It went by my house twice. It was a loop and it went by my house twice. And so I said, if I'm hurting, I'm just going to go in and pour a bath and, and quit. <laughs> That's not what happened. So I did a marathon right off. And that was, that was cool. It was a road marathon. It didn't really feel that great. And then maybe five years went by and I did a trail marathon and that was cool. And then I don't know. And then I did triathlons. I did a half Ironman and I didn't really like the swimming. So I just kind of left that behind. So I would just try to find the next thing that would challenge me. And then I ended up uh, hurting my back when I was 44 or something. And so I rehabbed my back, doing a lot of core, took some time off, and I was looking for something to come back to. And I saw this advertisement for the death race. This is- Oh, uh, yes, I really wanted to get into this. <laughs> so I see this advertisement. It's a 10-mile trail run with obstacles, but you may die. That was the thing, death <laughs> race. 10-mile obstacle, 10-mile run with obstacles, you may die. So it had everything I loved, right? It was, I was looking for a 10-mile trail run obstacles I can crawl through mud whatever and you may die I was like sure bring it on so I expected it to be just like running over running through mud puddles or something I never ran I showed up at 4 a.m I had to take not uh I didn't have to sign a release a liability release I had to on camera read a liability release so they were <laughs> trying to scare us I'm like what is going on here and uh, it started at 5 a.m. I never ran for 13 hours and I was looking for a trail running race and it was the most crazy, challenging, stupid, fun thing I've ever done. It was just crazy. It was the, it was the original Spartan death race. Spartan hadn't been invented, but it was the guy, Joe DeSena, who invented Spartan. He, that, this was his first ever uh, race and it was called the death race. What did like this describe like the race uh, for people listening, like what it entailed, like what it were some would, of the things it, you had to. Yeah, it would, it took 13 hours and that for a death race was crazy, but they got longer. It, it got a lot crazier, mm -hmm. but this first one took me 13 hours, but you didn't know the ending. So you knew it started at five, but you didn't know anything about it. You, they let you in on things as soon as you finish challenges. So the first challenge you had to go get this log, this eight foot log that they cut the day before, pine log, and you had to drag it a hundred yards. Everybody was like carrying theirs, but I was so weak. I was the smallest guy. I dragged mine because I couldn't carry it. You had to cut it into eight pieces, a foot long, but it was, you had a carpenter saw and it was a pine log. So the sap bounded up. So you couldn't really saw it. You had to cut it into eight pieces, split those pieces into four with a mallet and a wedge. And, um, and then you had to pile it up nicely and, and they had to okay it. That took an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> and I was, in, I was like, some people quit already. They're like, this is stupid. And so um, I'm like in fifth place at this point. The next thing I had to do I had to use a Home Depot five gallon bucket and move two yards of sand, the hundred meters. So at by, that took an hour. So after two hour, two and a half hours, I hadn't moved anywhere. 
I cut a log and I moved two yards of sand and it just got worse from there. At, at one point I had to build a, a wheelbarrow, put in 70 pound sandbag, the Home Depot bucket, a tire, and then I had to wheel that uh, wheelbarrow 10 miles on a trail, not a road, not a dirt road, a trail. Well, you can't wheel a wheelbarrow full of 80 pounds of stuff on a trail. So I would carry the bucket with the tools 100 yards. Then I'd walk back. I'd get the sand, the 70 pounds of sand, and walk that up. And then I'd get the wheelbarrow with the tire. And I did that for 10 miles. So I did, I did 30 miles with this wheelbarrow. And that was just half of it. It just, it was the craziest thing ever. And every time you finished a challenge, Joe and Andy, this guy, Andy Weinberg, would just make up, okay, the next thing you got to do is carry this rock up this <laughs> down. And you're like, okay. And so everybody quit except three people. Everyone quit. Um, but the hardest thing, and I have to tell you this, the hardest, scariest thing, there's, there was a culvert under a road, a hundred foot culvert. The culvert was 30 inches in diameter. There is six inches of water running through the culvert. And you had to crawl through with the sand, the 70 pounds of sand and the bucket full of tools. And you couldn't do it on your hands and knees. It was too small. You had to do it on your back. So imagine crawling backwards on your back with 70 pounds of sand with a bucket at six inches at a time through a tunnel, a, a culvert. It was the scariest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Luckily, there was one other person in there. We were like talking to each other. Are you like, are you okay? Are you alive? We're doing okay. And we made it through, but it's, I could go on and on. It was the craziest thing I've ever done. I won the race by three hours and I retired from Spartan racing that day. I'm like, I'm out. No, no, no other Spartan race ever? Never. <laughs> Never. They wanted me to go back to, you know, defend my death race title. And I'm like, no way. It was, it was crazy. It got a lot worse after that. Mine was very tame, but it was the first one. And the reason it was so tough is because expectations, right? I expected to go on a 10 mile trail run. I ended up going on a 13 mile struggle test. Right. <laughs> a 13 hour struggle test. Yeah. 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 Did the thought of quitting ever cross your mind during that race? never never and i don't you know i there's no way um nope and here's another fun aspect david goggins right everybody knows david goggins now he was there and oh, wow. he was running, so he was there was a death race and a 50 mile race running race he was running the 50 mile and i met david goggins i didn't know who he was this is 2007 i had dinner with him the night before and he's like you're doing the death race? I said, yeah. He's like, dude, you better like damp, dark places. And I'm like, why? He's like, oh, I just heard. And I'm like, aren't you a Navy SEAL? And you're not, you're scared of this? He's like, yeah, dude, you are in for it. And I didn't know who David <laughs> Goggins was. And all I can remember is just David Goggins telling me not to do it. And I didn't even listen to him. So it was hilarious. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so like, so what, what's next for you on the endurance calendar? Like any big endurance quests planned? Yeah. So I, 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 
four years ago, I said, I got to run a hundred miler. That sounds crazy to me. So I did the run rabbit run, loved it. Uh, so then I signed up for the Wasatch 100, which is right in my backyard here in Park City. Loved it. Did the I Am Tough last year, got in off the wait list in COVID year craziness. Loved it. And so I signed up for a 100 miler in Switzerland. It's called the Swiss Alps 100. It is August 13th, has 32,000 vertical feet of climb and 32,000 vertical feet of descent. So it's going to be my toughest uh, 100 ever. I'm in training right now and, and uh, can't wait. Can't wait. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a good place to train for, for something like that, though. All those mountains. Yeah, I, mean, I'm, I got the Wasatch right here. So it's just go outside and go climb. And, and I just love the fact that I'm still learning about 100 miles. I'm still a learning athlete in, in ultra running. Um, and I reach out and I read a lot and I talk to a lot of people. And it's just really fun for me right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. So getting these last uh, handful of questions here. So throughout your life so far, and you know, what you've done as an Olympic skier, you know, business owner, endurance athlete, et cetera, were there any pivotal moments or experiences for you that really changed your perspective on human performance and performing optimally, like related to recovery, training, nutrition, you know, et cetera? Uh, I think it's like two things. Number one, in my skiing career, I think standing next to Phil Mayer and Steve Mayer, Ingemar Stenmark, Franz Klammer, seeing, standing next to, learning from champions um, was a huge, huge part of it because there wasn't a lot of information out there. So you as an athlete had to, had to see it, had to ask questions, had to find out yourself. And not only were they my teachers unknowingly, because they didn't really teach me, I just learned from them. They were also my motivation. Heroes played a big role for me. Um, so I think when you're in it, you gotta learn as much as you can in every way you can uh, and, and take what you learn and see if it works for you tweak it for you and use it. If it doesn't work for you, throw it away. But the more you can just start to learn and learn and learn and, and tweak everything to your strengths and weaknesses is really important. And never, never forget that those heroes are motivation too. That was like inside um, my skiing life. Outside, I think it's a combination, you know, or let's say post skiing, it's been a combination of just doing it. Like I started a business at without knowing anything and just dove in. So half of it is just that experiment and saying yes to anything and saying, why not? Why don't we try that? Half of it is that. And then the other half is just researching and, and, and asking questions and, and seeing what people are doing out there and combining it. So it's a real combination, I guess. Both of them are, you know, be open to everything, say yes to anything, say why not to everything, but also do your homework. And so you can learn from every, everybody else. I don't know if that makes sense, but those are the two yeah. aspects that really come together for me. Yeah, no, it does make sense. Yeah, for sure. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. 
what would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. Uh, right now, we are uh, deep into, uh, pun intended, uh, Elite Team is creating a new Dig Deep Academy. That's one of our models, digging deep, right? Grit, resilience. So hopefully in five years, I can say that all the work I'm doing in 2020 and 21, creating this academy for elite teamers will have paid off uh, both financially, but more importantly, um, getting as many kids inspired and educated as possible so they can pursue their, their dreams athletically. Hopefully. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, what does your daily routine look like? Uh, at, daily routine is up at 4.45. I'm sh running by 5.15. Whether I'm not or I'm training for an ultra, I'm, I'm always running or skinning or doing something at 5.15. So uh, by the time I'm showered and shaved at 7.30, I've already got a win. I mean, it makes me feel powerful. It makes me feel confident. It makes me feel ready for the day. So I'm an early riser along with my wife. And then it's just work, 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 uh, either computer talking to me or whatever. And then I'll get out in the afternoon for a walk or a whatever, enjoy that sun and to bed early, either reading or, or trying to figure out how to do a, a ultra marathon better through yeah. watching you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very early riser for sure. 445. Yeah. yeah. Every day. Yeah. On the weekends too? Oh yeah, because I don't know what my training's like. I might as well. There's no sleeping in. I mean, if you're on a 445 schedule, if you're on a schedule, you're up no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get used to it. Um, so as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Uh, as I said, goals. I think goals are super important, especially for me. Having a, a huge goal but the second part might be most important is committing. Everybody has dreams, right? The way I say it is you have those dreams, but it's only a dream until you commit and then it becomes a goal. And I have found and practiced and perfected the skill of committing. So once I commit to something, nothing will get in my way. I mean, I may not get to it. I may not reach the limit, but I will not give up. And I try to, I try to um, share that with the kids. It's a commitment where you feel it in your belly. And once you commit to something, the answer is easy, right? Should I get up at 445 or should I sleep in? You get up at 445. I've committed, right? Should I, uh, should I read a book or watch Netflix until 1 a.m.? Read it back. The, the answers are there for you. And, and I love telling that to kids because they got so much stuff going on, right? They got social media, drinking, drugs, everything. And to help them steer through it, if they can commit to a goal, the answer is there already for that question. Should I go drinking with my buddies? The answer is no. I've, I'm, I'm trying to empower these kids to say no because you've committed to that goal. So commitment is just as important to me as that goal. Right. And that goal, that North star provides that direction too, which makes the, the process, I guess, seem a little more clear, you know, read that book versus watch Netflix at till 1am. 
it's the answers are, are made for you. And that's the toughest part about being a, an athlete and being a young person. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly, here, before I wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice would you like to leave the athlete listening, looking, who's looking to get to that, you know, next level, um, whatever that looks like for them. So, you know, do that road race that scares them or qualify for nationals or climb this big mountain, et cetera. You know, I hate to beat it to death, but set that goal and just do it. And if you're mm-hmm. going to do it, do it right. Right. And don't be afraid of failure because every failure is just a gift. It's just a learning process. There are no failures if you look at them the right way. And what's the worst that can happen, right? You just, you come up short, but the story, the experience of committing and going after that goal is what life's about. That's the, that's it. It's not the gold medal. I don't even know where my bronze medal is, but boy, the struggle and the process and the experience getting that bronze medal or getting to at least the chance of that bronze medal, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what takes the most amount of time. Whereas that medal moment lasts, you know, seconds, minutes or whatever. Two minutes and six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Awesome. That was a great place. And Doug, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, 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 I think it's interesting. I just, uh, I just love uh, talking with people like you who are just interested in, in learning and pushing and developing and, and uh, challenging themselves. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love it. Where can people go to find you online? All right. So it's hard to spell, but it's E-L-I-T-E-A-M, elite team. It's one kind of combo word. So uh, you could Google Doug Lewis for sure, but E-L-I-T-E-A-M.com. And uh, you can see everything there. And we'd love to have your kids join us for camp and program. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserose.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserose4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.